Well, please find 2 Samuel chapter 3 in your Bibles, and I'm going to begin by saying Happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. Um, also acknowledge that uh, I think has been said already, Mother's Day is not always happy. Sometimes it's very hard, and, and I understand that too. My mom um, struggles on Mother's Day a little bit. She lost her mom when she was young, so um, we understand both those. I hope that you'll find hope and healing, um, regardless of where your status is, and um, pray for me this morning. Uh, we have a pretty strong commitment here to what we call expository preaching, meaning we're going to open up the Bible and pick up where we left off, the next verse. Well, it's Mother's Day, and we're in the middle of an Old Testament story of King David. And in chapter 3 of 2 Samuel, David marries six women and has six children by those six, or six sons anyway by those six women. That's not like what Hallmark makes Mother's Day cards out of. That's weird stuff. And so it has been a major challenge for me this week to, uh, I really contemplated, do we just do a one-off Mother's Day message or do we stay with this commitment? It's not die, you know, we don't die with it, but um, we're going to see if we can make something out of this. So um, hopefully you'll get my heart and my thought on that. One just teaching point right off the bat is the Bible tells it like it is. Um, The good, the bad, the ugly. And it, there's a term that they use called, it's either descriptive or prescriptive. The Bible often describes what happened. Does not mean it's right, doesn't mean it's acceptable. It just describes life that was happening to King David. Other places, it's prescriptive saying, hey, this is the way you ought to do things. Well, this is definitely a descriptive moment. This is when the Bible, I think, is brutally honest. I think it's one of the... Um, uh, reasons we can trust the Bible. It is not some sort of redacted, um, sugar-coated version of, of what we want things to be. It is, um, it's the truth, and it's hard truth sometimes, but we get to hear it. Earlier, Christy Reed read from the third psalm, and I want to make some connections to that psalm right off the bat. That psalm was written by King David, And it was written about his son Absalom, one of the sons that we're going to read about this morning. And if you were paying attention, there were some pretty bad things in that, like, God, my foes are against me and stuff like that. He's talking about his own kid. But there's a line in there, and maybe this is more Mother's Day material. Verse 4 of Psalm 3 says, I'm sorry, verse 5, I lie down and sleep and I wake up again because the Lord sustains me. This time of year, Mother's Day, especially I'm married to a teacher, sometimes that's the best we get. We went to bed and we woke up. God gave us another day. So here we are before the Lord's word, 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time, about seven years we learned last year or last week. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. So this is just what happened in that one location. This is not the, the entirety of David's life. This is one seven-year period of David's life. His firstborn was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab, was the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, daughter of Malmaah, king of Jeshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. The sixth, 
Ithream, the son of David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. So again, if you're doing the math, there are six different sons by six different women in seven years. Let's pray. <laughs> God, I thank you that you tell us the truth. And I thank you that even when it's not flattering um, to a man that you certainly in your word lift up in many ways, King David um, is not a great example here at all. Um, in fact, God, he, um, he displays your grace because you used him despite his shortcomings. And God, I pray that we can learn from this this morning. We do want to honor you above all and help us to learn, God, what it means to live in a world where men and women are created equal, but they're created different and we have to interact with one another. And God, oftentimes um, we've gotten that wrong. And, and David is an example of that. And help us learn from that, God, and again, ultimately, uh, exalt your son, Jesus Christ, who in him there is neither male nor female, slave nor free. We're all in him. So we just ask, God, that you be glorified today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, A is David's many spouses. Um, again, if you were to list those, there's another that comes along. Her name is Bathsheba. Uh, David has many wives. And... Uh, so let me try and make sense of this and kind of give you why this was happening. Not again uh, condoning it, but tell you what's going on. A, it was political. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says there was war still going on between David and Saul. It lasted a long time. And David grew stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker. One of the ways that kings, and David's the king of Judah at this point, got stronger was alliances with other tribes and other nations. The reason there's seven or six different wives, in part, not exclusively, I'm not going to let David off the hook, but in part, is political alliances. One of them in particular was from a land north of where Ishbosheth was the king of Israel. And so that just that alliance kind of surrounded the, king, the nation of Israel at that time. But Saul is, is trying to um, hold on to power. His, his household is. He's dead. Abner's trying to hold on to power. But David is, is gathering wives and gathering children and growing, as it says, stronger and stronger and stronger. Later on in this chapter, which we'll get to, I think, next week, um, there's a disagreement about another woman that Abner slept with, and Ishbosheth took offense to that, and eventually Abner comes over to David. And so the, the story here is the political story of growing David's kingdom. God is doing that. If you just look at the headings in your Bible, if you have an NIV, it says stuff like uh, chapter 3, this, this war goes on. I'm sorry, uh, Abner comes over to David. Then look at these names. Joab murders Abner. Ishbosheth is murdered. David becomes king. He conquers Jerusalem. Um, eventually, I'm down at verse like chapter 10 now, believe it or not. He defeats other people. He sleeps with Bathsheba and murders Uriah in chapter 11. He eventually, in chapter 13, Amnon, who's one of his sons, uh, does something with Tamar. Absalom kills Abnon. Absalom has a coup. So this is the trajectory of David. While he is growing stronger politically, what we're going to see is he's having problems in his household. That this, while it looks like on the outside things are going, at least in that setting, he's getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Sometimes the way the world says to get stronger is the worst thing that can happen closer to home. And so David's going to find that out. So A, it was political, 
But B, it was prohibited. Again, to our descriptive, prescriptive thing. David should have known better. David, in fact, was told, um, told his own son better. Solomon, who if you remember your Bibles at all, Solomon didn't really excel in this area of one husband and one wife thing either, or one man and one woman. He had 700 wives and concubines. And so you can see, I think, even this early signs of what's happening in David's household trickles down to his, his children. And so when I say it's prohibited, let me give you a few thoughts. In creation, back in Genesis chapter 2, God said it's not good for man to be alone, and so it let me make a woman for her, for him. She was a suitable helper, and it says there that man leaves his father and mother, is united with his wife, and they become one flesh. And so from the very beginning, God's design was one woman, one man for life, one flesh. It's hard to be one flesh with six wives. Does that make sense? Okay. And so from the very creation, created order tells us a lot about how God designed things. That's part of our frustration and struggles today with some of the things going on in our culture that forget the, no, don't, don't forget the Bible, but don't use the Bible right away. But just simple biology tells us some things are out of whack right now, right? God created things a certain way. Well, beyond that, back in Deuteronomy, and if you want to turn there, it would be helpful. Deuteronomy chapter 17 God had told the nation of Israel, one day you're going to ask for a king. And when you get a king, here's what you need to pay attention to. Here's how that should happen. And so if you look at Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 is where we'll pick it up. It says, when you enter the land the Lord your God has given you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. Now they messed that up. They chose Saul instead of David, but that's a Wednesday night study. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you you must not go back that way again. He must not take many wives. Uh-oh, right? Now, again, David taught this to Solomon later on in 1 Kings, but he may not take many wives. Or his heart will be led astray, and he must not accumulate large amount of silver or gold. Okay? He knew better, or he should have known better. And the, it's not a throwaway line. It's not just don't take many wives because your heart will be led astray. And sure enough, one of the wives mentioned, she was from uh, Gersha, I think it was. That was one of the lands that David interacted with when he was living with the Philistines. And so apparently this young lady or somebody from there caught his eye. And sure enough, as Solomon would, it would happen with Solomon, their hearts would go after foreign gods. And so David is not obeying the very clear commands of Deuteronomy 17. By the time you get to the New Testament, Jesus ratchets this up a little bit, and he's asked about, in fact, he's asked about in a way to trap him, they believe, about divorce and remarriage and stuff like that. And he says that, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? He said, for this reason, man should leave his husband and wife, be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. What God has joined together, no, let no one separate. And they asked about divorce. And here's, I'm getting a point, I hope, here. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give a wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses 
permitted you to divorce your wife because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces wife except for sexual immorality or marries another woman commits adultery. Here's the point. When Moses was told, give them a certificate of divorce, men didn't have to do that at that time. They could simply say, I don't want you anymore, and you're out the door. It is an act of gracious kindness that God said, you at least have to say, acknowledge that she was your wife, and you can't just treat her like property. Now, he also says, your hearts are hard, and I know things like that are going to happen, so make sure you're at least trying to do it the right way. That's, that's, but they're trying to trap Jesus. But what Jesus does is say, no, it's just like God intended from the beginning. He created us this way. The law says this. I'm teaching you the same thing. And one last point that I think is... Uh, prohibited in this sense that, that you shouldn't have six wives and from six different tribes is marriage is a picture of the body of Christ. And we covered this when we were in the book of Ephesians. That the reason we're to love and respect one another, the reason we're supposed to be committed to one another is because Jesus Christ does that with his church. He laid down his life for us, the body of Christ. We're his bride. He is faithful to us forever. And oftentimes at weddings, you'll see, say words like, till death do us part, right? Well, when it comes to the church and that, just think of the twist of that, till death do we reunite with our heavenly Father and our husband, Christ. It's, it's a wonderful turnaround of all that, but the reason God takes marriage and so seriously is because it pictures the gospel to a watching world. And so because of all those things, David should not have done what he did, okay? Prescriptive, not descriptive. C, it was problematic. And I want to make the direct connection here that there's a reason God gives us his word. There's a reason God lays out things like this. Because he knows us and he knows what's best for us. We may not like it, we may not understand it, but he is our loving heavenly father. He is not a killjoy. In fact, he's trying to tell us the way to get the most joy out of life. And so I want to make that connection. Yeah, it was prohibited, and the reason it was prohibited is because it's problematic. Bad things happen when you fall out of line with God's word. David would write the first psalm, blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. See, God wants what's best for us. He wants what's best for us and what's most glorious to him for sure. But there's a reason that God said, don't do this. Don't marry a lot of women. Don't have a lot of kids in, out of context and all this stuff. And just to give you the, I kind of skated over it earlier. Here's what happens with David's wives and his kids. By the time we get to chapter 6, his favorite wife will turn against him. Okay? Um, I could probably make some sort of comment about don't have a favorite wife, you know, but his favorite wife turned against him. By the time you get to 13, his daughter Tamar is raped by her half-brother, one of those other boys there. By the time, also in chapter 13, Amnon is murdered. By chapter 18, his son Absalom is trying to take the throne from him. By chapter 1 Kings, there's another son that tries to take the throne away, and he's finally murdered. And so this just becomes a whole problem for David to take on all these wives and have all these sons. And so here, I do think you can apply this a little bit. And this is an individual thought for you. Where in your life are you like 
digging in against something that you know God's telling you to do or not to do because you think he's like robbing you of joy or he really doesn't know the situation. I'm just telling you, when you're tempted to doubt God's love and care for you because of something in his word, we're off base there. It's the very thing that happened in the garden where they, they, the serpent convinced Eve that God really didn't have her best intentions in mind. And so she doubts God's word and she does that. And so I don't know, it might not be connected to Mother's Day or even marriage, but somewhere probably we're thinking, well, God, you know, I can't believe you're not going to let me do that or you want me to do that. I'm telling you, it's from a loving Heavenly Father who knows what's best and wants what's best for you. Well, point D, and I, I kind of make a turn here, it was personal. And what I mean by that is a couple of things. It was personal for David. David had some flaws in him that are revealed through this. But it was also personal because we read these names, we can't pronounce half of them, at least I can't. These were real women. These were real sons. And they, they can't be just dismissed as property or just part of the story or a pawn in, in, in the story. And, and this is where, when I was trying to decide, should I go into this passage or not on Mother's Day, I do want to make the point, and, and you shouldn't have to make it, and I hope we don't have to make it, but all men and women are created equal. We're, we, we're valued and we're honored. We're created in the image of God. And, and despite what you might hear around there, I want to tell you that Christ, for sure, and his followers, when they're truly following him, have made a world of difference when it comes to how women are treated in this, on this planet. This descriptive tale of David in the Old Testament shows us how things were, not just in Israel, but in most of the world, frankly, until Christ came on the scene. He changed the world for the better. And I don't want to get up here and brag and sound like, well, you know, you ought to be thankful for, for us. But I'm telling you, things have changed. And we have failed. The church has failed in many ways through the years. And when they have, I would suggest that they're following the world and they're not following the word of God when they do that. Okay, and so let me just kind of break this down for a second. When, even in Ephesians, when Jesus says, I'm sorry, when Paul writes, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. Now, the way that would have been written without Christ and without his, his impact on the world would have been honor your father, period. Fathers ruled the house. Everything else, everyone else was property. And if they didn't like the property, they just got rid of it. That's how it worked. It wasn't just in, in Israel that that happened. That was true of the Greco-Roman world. In fact, it's true in many parts of the world today, and I will suggest this. It's, a part, it's true in parts of the world today where Christianity has the less, least influence. Namely, look at some modern Islamic countries and watch. That's how women were treated back here, too. And so Christianity has made women were considered... Um, public property. They weren't allowed to speak in public. They must be veiled when they were out in public. They weren't supposed to be educated. They couldn't socialize with men. They couldn't leave their home without a trusted male escort, and that's just part of it. They were viewed as property, and one person said disrespected property at that. They were forced to and told whom they were going to marry and when they were going to marry, often at the age of 12 or 13. That's what was happening in this passage that we read today. Women were considered socially, intellectually, and spiritually inferior to men. And I want to read this. This is from the rabbinic law. This is from the way Jews at that time-ish viewed women. 
They said, let the word of the law, so our Bible, the Old Testament, let the word of the Torah be burned rather than taught to women. If a man teaches his daughter the law, it's as though he taught her to be promiscuous. That was the world that David is living in. That's the world Jesus confronted. Christy Reed could not have read the scriptures at Grace Community Church if we still viewed women that way. But then Christ came along, and he and his followers were taught how to dignify women and as equal image bearers. I'm going to quote uh, from a, a woman named Dorothy Sayer here in a second. She was a friend of C.S. Lewis. But there's an article entitled, Christianity, the Best Thing That Ever Happened to Women. And just so you know, it was written by a woman. It wasn't some man that wrote that. It says, as the result of Jesus Christ and his teaching, women in much of the world today, especially in the West, enjoy more privilege and rights than any other time in history. It's the best thing that ever happened to women. And here's Dorothy Sayer. Perhaps it's no wonder that, the women, were, that women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like Jesus, a prophet and a teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or, co or coaxed them or patronized them. He never made jokes about them. He rebuked them without complaining, and he praised them without condescension. He took their questions and their arguments seriously, and he never urged them to be feminine or to jeer at them for not being feminine. He had no ax to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend. Who took them as, as he found them and was completely unselfconscious? There is no act or sermon or parable in the whole gospel that borrows its power from females being inferior. Nobody could possibly guess from the words of Jesus that there was anything weird or funny about a woman's nature. Okay? Now, here's the charged culture we live in, and here's what I am mindful of. What I just said may sound woke. Okay, if you know that term, that's Christianity. Christianity is not woke. It goes too far in many ways. And so lest you think that we're, you know, uh, I'm doing something, don't make me say what I'm not saying. What I'm telling you is God has always viewed women as the highest of his creations, just like man. And we need to honor that. And, and when you go to the New Testament, I just want to show you, have you call to mind some of these things. You don't need to turn there. When Jesus comes to the Samaritan woman at the well, there were so many things culturally out of line with that situation. Jesus should not have, as a Jewish man, approached a woman in public, especially a woman like that in public. He should never have greeted her in public. That's why his disciples were shocked when they came back and found him talking to her. He shouldn't have cared about her. He shouldn't have, as one author said, cared about her thirsty soul. And yet he did, and he taught her, and the scriptures say she ran away and told everybody else. She had no business in that world telling anybody anything, and yet she was one of the first evangelists for Jesus Christ. The woman caught in adultery. The religious men thought they had Jesus cornered there, and he, that's where he said, if you've done nothing wrong, you can cast the first throne or stone. Even Peter's teaching, and this, I think this just shows you how out of step the world is and even the modern world with what the Bible teaches. When Peter talks about the, that women should adorn themselves with an inner beauty, not an outer beauty, let me just address that for a second because so, so many of these things are misinterpreted. Peter is elevating women there, and it may not seem like it, but in a world where women were only viewed as external and how they looked, 
he is telling the women, you have something very special and valuable inside of you. That you're a special creation of God. That your soul matters. That your heart matters. Take care of that. Even though everybody around you is saying the only thing that matters is the external, God is saying it's the internal. Listen, if we really believe that, think of how many young girls and old girls and old women would not be so burdened by how they look all the time, but what's going on on the inside. Now, we've twisted that, and you read that in Peter in some places, and they just say you're crazy. No, I'm telling you, that is liberating to a woman who's never been told she's anything but an object or property. And so Peter says that. And even Paul, you want to start a fight, start referencing Paul about women. Paul had some difficult things to say. Some things are um, more clear or not. But he elevated, when, when he told women, by the way, you could use your spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. Now, he did say you can't preach, but you can do all kinds of other things. He did say you can pray in the body of Christ. You can talk about God in the body of Christ. That's all. It's not just news. It's radical news to the world of that time. He would tell women that they were fellow heirs with Christ. You realize how many women through the course of history had no say, no inheritance. They were just property. In fact, in many places, even today, a widow's burned when her husband dies because she's just part of the property. He said you should respect them, love them, be considerate to them. In fact, he tells husbands when you're harsh with them, God won't hear your prayers. And one last little passage to kind of wrap this part up. When Jesus is at the home with Mary and Martha, and Martha's busy, 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 right? She's doing what women were expected to do at that day. Mary's sitting at his feet is shocking in that story. We don't get that. But the fact that not only would she be thinking, I can learn something from this rabbi, and Jesus affirming that and actually teaching her things is shocking in the day. And in chapter 12, that's Luke chapter 10 and chapter 11 of John's gospel, these famous words, I am the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives and believing in me will never die. Those famous words were said to a woman, and the shocking part of that, you know the next few words of that verse? Do you believe this? That was an invitation to a woman to follow Jesus. Now, I pray you're saying, well, who cares? You know, that's that shows you the difference that Christianity has made in the world. That was shocking. Jesus should have never taught her and should have never invited her to come into the kingdom, but he did. All right, point one. David had many spouses. Point two, and this will be more quickly. That was the heart of what I want to say right there. Point two, David had many sons. A, his progeny. I looked that up to make sure it meant what I thought it meant. It means he had lots of descendants. We're listed six of them here. He had 19 total. If you go through the scriptures, two of them are unnamed, so he really had 21. They probably died earlier, something like that. And as we've already noted, and that's why we'll move quickly, through, this was a way to extend power, exert power. And David was building his kingdom and, and doing that in, in many ways that we would not approve of today, but that's how it was going back then. And again, back to the point, it was his problems. These sons would murder each other, sleep with half-sisters, try to take his throne from him. There are eight psalms that were probably written about Absalom, one of his sons. And they're not fun psalms. They're things like, whack them upside the head and kill them, God. You ever want to say that about your kids? 
David wrote eight psalms about one of his sons. And I'll just, again, what Christy read earlier, I want to re- remind you of a few of those words, or if you weren't in here at that time, here's how Psalm 3 starts, and it's about Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? He's talking about his son. One of these six sons in chapter 3, he wrote a psalm and says, They're my, he's my foe and he's rising up against me. He says in verse 6, I will not fear though tens of thousands assail me from every side. He's blaming that on his son. He says, deliver me, God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Maybe on Father's Day I'll get into that, but this is Mother's Day. And maybe you wanted to strike your kid on the jaw or have God do it. Well, all these kids and all this problem were problems for David. He wrote, again, eight psalms saying, God, deal with these kids. I can't deal with them. And it is, again, a reminder that Mother's Day can be tough. Maybe some of you can picture the kid you want God to strike on the jaw right now. But I'm telling you, God loves you and he loves them. And point C, his purposes. And by his purposes, I mean God's purposes. I've not painted a very flattering picture of King David here. But despite all that, God would use him. He was a man after God's own heart, although he's not acting like it now. At later times, like with Bathsheba, when confronted with his sin, he would repent. But when I say God still has purposes, here's what I mean. Despite what we do, by God's grace... He still loves us, and I'm convinced he still has a role for us in the kingdom of God. I think it was last week I talked about the shame that we carry sometimes. There are things that I've talked about this morning, marriage, children, divorce, sexuality. Just those four things bring a lot of regret and anger and pain and shame to us when we're honest about how we've lived our lives or how others have affected our lives. Those are difficult, close-to-the-heart issues that will beat a person down. And I want to affirm and reaffirm that God has a plan for your life no matter how that hits you, that he can redeem those things, that he can change those things, that he can use them as a testimony for his grace And his faithfulness, maybe not yours, but his. And so God will use David in many ways. And God will use us in many ways, despite how we've lived our lives. If we were to write a descriptive six verses of our lives, I bet I could come up with something, not exactly like this, but I could come up with six verses that you wouldn't want to know about your pastor. And yet, God uses me, and God uses you. I want you to know God still has a purpose for your life. And maybe you're on the female side of this where you feel used and abused by men all your life. I'm telling you, you have a heavenly Father that loves you more than you know. And maybe you're the man treating women that way, or maybe, frankly, you're men that have been missed. I don't know, but I'm telling you, you have a God that loves you and loves you for what's on inside of you and not outside and, and all those things I've tried to mention this morning. Thirdly, David's many sins. This is just one little, what I say, five-verse section of his life. We haven't even got to chapter 11 yet with Bathsheba and Uriah where he murders and all that stuff. So I just want to make two points about David. 
A, he couldn't stop himself. What we see here is just the beginning. I think there are the seeds of his uh, passions and his lust that start here that we see fully in chapter 11 with Bathsheba. He could not control himself. He would give in to his lusts. And the way lust works in our lives is it wants more. When we give in to the flesh, the flesh wants more. Were it not for God's grace and God's purposes, David would have never made it to the throne because he disqualified himself in so many ways. And his downfall could have been our downfall. It's there, uh, those issues I've already mentioned, marriage and sexuality, those kind of things. Think of how many lives, careers, homes, nations have been destroyed because of those things. Okay? David couldn't help himself. He could have probably relate to Paul. Paul in Romans chapter 7 says, man, I know what I want to do, but I can't do it. Because the flesh is there, and the flesh just keeps driving. And, but chapter 7, that's Romans chapter 7, chapter 8 is, but there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, and so David just finds himself doing this, and I think it leads into things with Bathsheba and others, and that's why the Bible is very clear about this issue of sexuality and flee from sexual immorality, not even be a hint of it. Well, not only is he cannot control himself, or he can't, um, I'm sorry, stop himself, he can't save himself. See, David, the king of Israel, was supposed to be the one who saved Israel. David couldn't stop himself. He couldn't save himself. See, he's not qualified to stand before God and say, I'm sorry for all my sins, and so will you please accept the sacrifice because it comes from a blemished man. And it requires a perfect sacrifice to honor God. David could not save himself just like we can't save himself. I, I, I do hope in, in an odd way that you find yourself in David's story here. You've messed up too and you can't stop yourself, but God can help sanctify us, and he's certainly the only one that can save us. David, as we've seen over and over, points us to his son, the son of David, King Jesus, who did succeed where David failed. And he was married to one bride, and that was us, the church. And rather than kill for power, he died for power. And he offers all of that to us, and I pray that you know him. Because David was, again, one of the one of the men up there, we've kind of torn the veil back and seen how it didn't always work out great for him. Or he wasn't always a great man. But just like him, we all fall short of the glory of God. We need Jesus Christ. We need Jesus Christ to lead a better life that honors God and honors one another. And we need Jesus Christ because we're ultimately going to fail at that to forgive us when we have fallen. I pray that you know him. And the only thing I will say in conclusion is this. Men, let's honor women like Jesus did. Okay, Not like David did, but like Jesus did. Women, I want you to know you are loved by the Lord in ways that we often fail to share with you. And all of us, I hope we know Jesus Christ. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for these words. Um, I thank you that we have this example of David, um, a sad example in many ways, to lead us to the truth of Jesus and the truth of the gospel. And I do pray here, God, we leave honoring the women in our lives. God, I pray here that the women understand that they're valued more than they know, more than we're able to show them for sure, but I pray that they tap into and understand the love that Christ has for them. For all of us, God.
And so, God, however this finds us, I pray that we all look to you as our Savior, as our Lord. I pray that we yield to your Spirit in our lives so that we can live like Jesus did and how he commands us to. God, I pray for those that don't know you, that they would give their life to you. That they would confess their sins to you and they would accept your forgiveness and follow you in, in all areas of their life. And God, may our identity be found in you. May our joy and our hope be found in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.